Good morning. So turn in your Bibles, if you have one, uh, to 2 Samuel chapter 18. Um, not, I will not have all the verses up. We're covering a lot today. We're actually going through all of chapter 18, the first eight verses of chapter 19. So please feel free. People walking around, just go up, get a Bible. If you don't have one, you're going to need one. Um, if you don't have one, of course, and you don't own one, take it with you. But that's what we're going to be. We're going to be looking at all of chapter 18 into chapter 19, verse, uh, verse 8. Uh, we're almost done with the study of the first and second Samuel. Uh, remember, it's one book in the original Hebrew, uh, but we have studied both books. Our series will end the end of next month, and we will be in the book of Galatians. Uh, be studying that book, book of Galatians, uh, New Testament written by Paul. I want to encourage you to read it during your devotions or maybe other times of the day, listening to it on your app, maybe if that's, I like to do that a lot. Um, and that's where we're going next. We'll start uh, this, uh, um, Palm Sunday, I believe, we'll start that book. So we're in 2 Samuel, lots of characters, lots of people, two main characters that we've been looking at the past few weeks in our study together. The past couple of weeks, we're looking at David, who of course is the king, the second king of Israel, and Absalom, David's son. Lots of people coming in and out, but basically it's about these two men. Uh, David's consequence, the consequence of David's sin as he, as he sinned against uh, Bathsheba, uh, committed adultery with her, murdering Uriah, her husband, and the rebellion of his son Absalom. Absalom is, is rebelling against his father, King David. Ultimately, though, as we've seen, that he's really rebelling against God himself. King David has established his kingdom. He is the anointed of God. He is, he is the Christ of God. He is the one God appointed to be king over Israel. And Israel is a representation of the kingdom of God. Sort of like today, the church. The church is, is not the kingdom, but it's at the outpost. It's the embassy of the kingdom of God. We have to represent him as we, as we worship, as we follow, as we obey the king of kings, the, David's greater son, Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the ultimate anointed one. So let me bring everybody quickly up to speed. As you know, David, I said, broke several laws, committed adultery against Bathsheba, uh, murdered Uriah. David did repent. You need to know that. God uh, um, forgave him. He repented of his sin. God forgave him. But Nathan, the prophet, came to King David after his sin, very important, chapter 12, and says, yes, you're forgiven. The Lord has forgiven you of his sin, but there are consequences to your actions. He said to him, Nathan told David through the mouth, you know, by, by, the, by his mouth, but through the word of God. Nathan told David, the sword will not depart from your house. That's the consequence of his sin. The sword will not depart from your house. Chapter 12, verse 10. I will raise up evil against you out of your own house consequence for your sin. He said, I'll take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. They will have sex with them before all of Israel. That's exactly what Absalom did. And he said, the child who is born to you through this adultery will die. And chapter 12, that's what it said. Onward, we're seeing all this of the Lord's uh, uh, announcement, the word of God being fulfilled. Seven-year-old day son passed away. David's son Amnon raped his sister Tamar, David's other son Absalom, kills Amnon for doing it. It's all within the family. And we've been noticing over the past couple of weeks that this major conspiracy has started. Absalom, who killed Amnon, who's rebelling against his father, has started this conspiracy to take his dad, King David, down. Take the kingdom out of his hands. There are a couple of key scriptures I want to point your, your I want to point you to uh, before we get started. Uh, kind of give us and describe for us what's going on. 
Chapter 14, verse 25. All of Israel, there was not one single person in all of Israel to be praised was more handsome than Absalom. Remember that? From the sole of his feet to the crown of his head, not a single blemish. Mr. Rockstar. When he cut his hair every year, it weighed 200 shekels, a couple of pounds. He cut it himself. He weighed it himself. He's full of himself. Chapter 15, verse 6. Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Chapter 15, verse 12. The conspiracy to take the kingdom out of David's hand grew stronger and stronger. And the people with Absalom kept increasing. See what's going on. And At the point of the story, which we get into chapter 18, Absalom has declared himself king in a place called Hebron, south of Jerusalem. David hears it and he flees. He grabs some men and some family with him and he takes off and he leaves Jerusalem because he knows his son Absalom is going to return and it's going to be a bloodshed. There's going to be bloodshed, a bloodbath. And he flees Jerusalem. Absalom is south of Jerusalem. David flees north, east to the Transjordan. Remember last week, as Absalom comes into Jerusalem, David is gone. There's two men with Absalom. He's self-proclaimed king. There's two men with him. Ahithophel, he's the traitor. He was David's confidant. Now he's a traitor. And Ahithophel is now on the side of Absalom. But David also has a spy. Remember last week, his name is Hushai. He's the spy. He was sent into Jerusalem by David. Keep an eye on what's going on. Both of these men give Absalom advice. This is how you take out David. Remember that from last week. Ahithophel, the traitor who's with Absalom, says, listen, while David's on the run, he's fled Jerusalem. Go get him. He's tired. He's weak. He's all disjointed. He's, 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 get him now. Go get him now. That's what Ahithophel tells him. Hushai, the spy who's working for David, says, no, don't do that. Don't do that. Wait a while. Let's gather an army together. And forget what Ahithophel says. Ahithophel says he's going to do the work himself. Ahishai says to uh, Absalom, you wait, get an army. Get an army, a vast army. And then you go and kill David yourself. Remember, because Absalom is so full of himself, he buys that story. Oh, I like that. Big army, go kill him myself. I like that. I like that better. Let's do what Hushai said. Forget Ahithophel. Let's not attack right away. Let's do what Hushai says. And what that does is buy David some time. He flees from Jerusalem. He's heads up. He heads east. He's crossing the Jordan, buying him some time. Remember that from last week. We ended with Ahithophel found out that he's the traitor. Ahithophel finds out that David's not going to follow his, excuse me, Absalom's not going to do what he says. And he goes home and he hangs himself. He knew that David, when David came back into power and found out that Ahithophel is a traitor, a turncoat, when he finds out he's going to try him for treason and kill him, so Ahithophel goes to his house, sets up house, and then hangs himself. Turn with me to chapter 16, chapter 17. And we can see exactly what's going on. Chapter 17, after he hangs himself, it says in verse 24, David came to Mahanaim. Okay, that's again on uh, northeast of Jerusalem. Go down to verse 26. And Israel and Absalom encamped in the land of Gilead. 
So here's what's going on. You need to know this. David has fled. He is northeast of Jerusalem. Absalom, his son, is going after him. He leaves Jerusalem and he starts heading north, going towards David. There's going to be a war. He's heading north. He knows where David is. He's heading for the northeast, Transjordan, crossing the Jordan River. He wants to get David. That's exactly what's going on in our text. War is going to happen. It's going to happen this morning as we read the text. So, here's the four movements of the text. First, we're going to see the army are going to fight. Absalom's army against David's army is going to fight. We're going to see a defeated army. Then we're going to see the death of Absalom. This morning is going to be the last time we speak about his long flowing hair, unfortunately. Then David's grief. And then we get into chapter 19. We're going to see the displeasure of Joab. Began with a D. It's really a rebuke. Um, David deserves it. David is a hot mess. I, 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 was, I was on my way this morning. This is a side note. But I'm listening to the text as I'm, I'm driving in this morning. I'm listening, I listened to a couple of chapters, of chapter two before, chapter to kind of get the... And I'm just thinking, you know, it's one thing I love to do about expository preaching. It's like, you know, when you hear about David and you hear one thing, Goliath. Like, you know, he's a lot more like the rest of us, you know, just up and down, up and down. And you'll see that again this morning. That was free. Okay. Defeated army. So... Absalom's headed up, going north, heading to the east, northeast, where David is. And we read in verse 1, hear the word of the Lord. David mustered the men. Now, he's a Mahanim. He's in a city on, on the east coast of Jerusalem, of the east coast of Israel, right? So he has mustered up the men, verse 1. He set over them commanders, listen, of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And David, verse 2, sent out the army, one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai, the son of Zeruah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Ittai, the Gittite. And the king said to the men, I myself will also go out with you. But the men said, you shall not go out, for if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us. But you are worth, you, David, are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, it is better that you send us help from the city. You stay in that city. And the king said to them, whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood at the gate, side of the gate, while all the army marched out by hundreds and by thousands. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. So, so King David's mustering up an army. It's, it's a fairly large army. It's got thousands and hundreds of units. Um, it's not as big as Absalom's army, I'm sure. He's got all of Israel. But it's enough men, he splits them up in three. And notice Joab. Joab is with David. We saw him before. He's the, he's the top military advisor to David. He's been there for quite some time. Um, and, and what's interesting is, as Joab is with David, do you remember who's with Absalom, who's going after David? It was a man by the name of Amasa. He's the nephew of David. He is the cousin of Joab. This is a, this is a family fight. This is a civil war. This is, this is a family fight. And some of you are going, I, yeah, I know all about family fights, right? <laughs> Joab, a third. Abishai, Joab's nephew, a third. Hittite, the Gittite, a third. Which is interesting because he just showed up on a scene in chapter 13. He was in Jerusalem one day. One day, and there's the king leaving Jerusalem, weeping as he goes. And this guy, the Hittite, the Gittite, Sees David, and David's like, look, you just got here yesterday. Just go home. He's like, no, no, no. I'm going to serve you. I'm, I'm with you, man. 
live or die, I'm with you. And David's like, all right, you can come with me. And here he's taking, short time later, he's, he's part of the plan. He's part of the battle. And David makes this command decision. He says, look, you're, you're, you're not, I'm going with you. If we're going to go fight, I'm going with you. And, and at first glance, seems noble. Seems like a good idea. Seems like the king should go with his men. But as we'll find out, I think there's some ulterior motives going on with David. Men rise up and they go, you know what? You're worth so much more than us. Listen, if they kill us, they won't care. If they pursue us, they won't care. What they really want, David, what Absalom and his men want is you. Don't come with us. Stay in the city. If we need help, we'll send messengers. And you could stay by the city and you could send men if need. These men are patriots. They, they care for the kingdom of God. They care for their king, David. They're willing to fight for David, to look out for their leader. And David acquiesces and says, all right, I'll, I'll stay. But then in verse 5, <laughs> the king orders the three men who take in these armies, Joab, Abishai, and Ittai, and he says to them, look what he says, deal gently, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to the commanders about Absalom. It was loud enough, well enough heard that everyone understands. And you got to say, oh, come on, David. Why are you so concerned about your son, your children? Why are you more concerned about your sons and your children than the kingdom of God, the honor of your God? And we've seen this before. Eli, if you remember, way back, refused to discipline his children. And God says, you scorned my sacrifices. You, 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 you scorned my, the offerings. He's a priest. You're offering by honoring your sons above me. Don't do that. Remember, things didn't go well with Eli. And David also, he, this, this is one of the things that David has a problem with. David chose his, chose his son's protection over justice and righteousness for the kingdom. David's sons Amnon, when he raped his sister Tamar, David did nothing. When Absalom killed Amnon for doing it in cold-blooded murder, David did nothing. David is more concerned about the well-being of his children, the protection of his children, the provision for his children, than he is for the glory and honor of God. And that should, that should wake you up. I said that once a long time ago, something similar to that. Somebody was blogging after that. I'm not really sure if they were a believer or not, but they're like, they couldn't believe I said that. Like, isn't, don't you honor God by, 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 by taking care of your children? Well, yeah, there's nothing wrong with providing for your kids. There's nothing wrong with protecting your children. There's nothing wrong with caring for your kids. But there's something wrong with caring for your kids, protecting your children, providing your children, if you're dishonoring the Lord doing it. Right? In a culture where we kind of bow down and worship our own kids, it should wake us up. The Apostle Paul told the church at the, uh, the Philippian church that our love should increase. We should grow in love, but do it with knowledge and wisdom and all discernment to know what the will and purpose of God are. And the principle here is, is rather simple, but very difficult. And the question I think that we can ask is, I think David uh, is, is imploring us to ask, is, is does, does all that we do, all the provision we provide, all the protection and care for our children correspond with the glory of God? Do we do it for his glory? Are we submitting to his word? Are we, are we thinking about how we can serve and love and honor him above all things 
Some of the things that we have to ask ourselves, and I've got to ask myself this as well. As I've done this, will I continue to do this? As I, as I, as I raise my grandson. Am I more important about his academic career than I am about Scripture? Good question. Is it more in time that he's, is it, is it more important to me that he spends times maybe on a soccer field, a baseball field, rather than gathering around with God's family in the church of God, hearing the word of God? Am I disciplining him that one day he will not only know the word of the Lord, but know the Lord of the word and worship him? That's good questions. We're only responsible for our action, our decision, their faith and their, and their love for Christ between him and the Lord and your children and the Lord, but we're responsible for what we do with our kids. Let's not be like David who acquiesced his authority and honored his son above the Lord and following his commands and his ways for us. His concerns were less about the victory that his troops sought after and more about the love he had against his rebellious son who's fighting David. I mean, think about that. Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. Like, really? What do you think? We're meeting on the plain of Ephraim to, so we can have a party together, this big Shindig, like, you know, barbecue. No, we're going to war. But be careful with my son. Verse 6. So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated by, there by the servants of David. And the loss was great on that day, 20,000 men. Verse 8. The battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. Notice again, verse 6. It's uh, against Israel. David's fighting against Israel. David's the king of Israel. But here Absalom is connected with Israel in such a way, it's showing that the, the nation itself has, has walked away from their king. Not just their king. The nation themselves have walked away from their God. Has rebelled against their God. Not, 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 just, the, not just the king himself, but they've rejected God himself. And how careful we must be. How can it be that we're not drawn away with, with, with charisma and trickery and, and, and deceit of false teachers, false leaders? We see it so often in our culture. That's why we want you to be connected on Sunday morning, on community groups. Be in your word. Study the word. Read the scriptures. Church leaders are called to do what? To equip the saints for the work of the ministry, the building up the body to, to maturehood, Ephesians tells us, so that we, all of us, will no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried out by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, craftiness, and deceitful schemes. They're out there. Recently, this week, matter of fact, we had a pastor's gathering, a Liberty Church Network. We have a local center that meets here that we lead. Um, and we gathered together a bunch of pastors. And recently I was asked by another pastor, one of our, at this gathering this week, uh, whether or not I name names from the pulpit, whether, whether I actually call out false teachers from the pulpit. Before I could say anything, Pastor Ricky started laughing. Like, yeah, he really don't know Pastor Lou, right? I'm like, yeah, I don't make it like an everyday occurrence. Let's pick on this guy today or this woman today. But yes, we do. From time to time, we're going to call out people who are leading God's people astray. There are many of them that are wrapped up in their fancy rhetoric. They look good, like Absalom. Look how strong and charismatic. Not a blemish. He speaks so well. He throws in a couple of Greek words. He sounds really impressive. It's amazing. As you look those guys up and you find out what kind of training they have, they have none. But 
got to be careful. And all this Israel now is, has gone out against the king's, against God's anointed, following Absalom. The battle was decisive. They're in the forest. Um, a smart move on David and his men. David's forces used the terrain of the forest to, to maximize their advantage. They deploy separate units so that Absalom can't make this united stand against David. It's very smart. Fighting in the wilderness. Fighting, excuse me, in the, in the, in the forest. Lots of people die. It says that more people died in the treacherous terrain than actually on the battlefield. 20,000 men died. And Absalom here... And this defeated army brings life to Proverbs 16, does it not? Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Defeated army. Now look at verse 9. And Absalom, the death of Absalom. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom, no, remember, no cell phones, right? No text messages, no emails. Hey, I saw him. Come on over here. Like, just happened to meet David, servants, Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under a thick branch of an oak tree, and his head caught fast in the yoke, and he was suspended between heaven and earth, while the mule that was under him went on. Just happened. Just happened. Just happened is code word, really. Bible code word. Not, not for unusual circumstance and happenstances, but for providence and, and divine sovereignty. Say, well, how do you know that God is behind it? Because he told me. Not like audibly last night while I slept. It says in chapter 17, verse 14, For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Hiphathel, so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. Put that tree right there. And so it happened. He's hanging on a tree. It so it happened that David's people just happened to see him. It so happened that the mule just goes and moseys on down the road and leaves him dangling there. Now, this passage is funny because there are a lot of commentaries that want to say it wasn't so much his head hanging, it was his hair, right? <laughs> Robert Alter. Most obviously, the head of his hair that was his narcissistic glory is now the instrument of his fatal entrapment. Josephus, first century Jewish scholar. He, he entangled his hair greatly in the large boroughs of, of a knotty tree that spread a great way. And there he hung after a surprising manner, end quote. I'd like to think that it was his hair. But honestly, it says head, not hair. His head, I mean, his hair is on his head. So there probably was something to it, right? Maybe. I, I'm thinking his hair's all knotted up in that as well. Maybe, maybe his neck got caught. I don't know. Either way, the mule was his loyal mount, and now losing his mule, he has lost the kingdom. Bill Arnold, he writes, he, he wrote the commentary in the new, new uh, NIV, um, the NIV application Bible. This is what he said. This is really interesting. I had to tell you all this. He said this, Absalom rebellion. Now, remember, he's suspended between heaven and earth. Absalom's rebellion has left him without a ground beneath his feet, unable to fulfill his life as prince or king, and incapable of serving the kingdom of God. He is suspended between life and death, between the sentence of a rebel and a valued son, between the severity of the king and the yearning of a father, end quote. That is so good. He can't do anything. He can't dislodge himself. The mule keeps going, and there he is hanging from an oak tree. 
It's such an undignified end. Verse 10. Certain man saw it and told Joab, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. Joab said to the man who told him, What? You saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you ten pieces of silver and a belt. I guess belts were needed back then. I don't have a belt. You got a belt? I don't know. But a belt. I'll give you a belt. It's like, you know, I'll give you some plates and forks, whatever you know. But anyway, the man said, verse 12, even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I am not reaching out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai for the sake, protect the young man Absalom. On the other hand, verse 13, if I had dealt treacherously against his life and there's nothing hidden from the king, he would know everything. You, Joab, yourself would have stood aloof. Like, you were really going to protect me on this? No name given. Obviously, the man is more afraid of David than he is of Joab. There's not a amount of money you could give him to bribe him. He'd make a good politician today. I'm not taking any money. And you may or not think it's a noble thing that he did. Joab does not think it's noble at all. Absalom hanging powerless and helpless. Verse 14. Joab. Typical military commander. I got no time for you. I will not waste time like this with you. I got nothing to say. We're not going to have a debate about this. He took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart or into the chest of Absalom while he was still alive on the yoke. And ten young men, Joab's armor bearer, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Verse 16. Then Joab blew the trumpet. The troops came back from pursuing Israel for Joab... For Joab restrained them, and they took Absalom, threw him into a great pit in the forest, raised over him a very great heap of stone, and all Israel fled, everyone to his own home. Now, the death of Absalom, the death of Absalom, the words used in his death have, have great theological and thematic significance in the Old Testament, okay? And that's what we're going to look at for a moment. Absalom was hanging in an oak tree. Now, the word hanging used here in, in 2 Samuel, is only used once in the Torah, in, in the five books of Moses, the law. Only one time. And that's in Deuteronomy chapter 21. And you know when it's used? To declare that anyone who's hung on a tree is under the curse of God. Absalom, with all his muscles, all his hair, all his good looks, all his mighty army, could not escape God's judgment. The Lord had declared in the Torah, you dishonor your father, you murder your child, you murder your brother, you, you, you sleep with your father's wives, you're under the curse. Absalom was under the curse of God. The Lord had upheld his law. And there's more. The way Absalom was buried in his death, also, according to Scripture, under the curse of God. Joshua 26, Achan being stoned to death for his sacrilegious, uh, sacrilegion, he's, he's buried under a pile of stones. Joshua 8.29, the king of Ai, having been hanged on a tree, is thrown into a pit covered with a large uh, pile of stones. Joshua 27, the five enemy kings, having been put to death by hanging on a tree, are thrown into a cave and covered with large stones. Absalom, hanging on a tree between heaven and earth, pierced with spears, cursed, a murder and rebellious, thrown in a pit and covered with stones. So here's the million dollar question. 
was Joab insubordinate? Kind of. Right? I mean, I guess you could say yes. It's a judgment call. Joab had to make a decision on the field. Should he bring him back home alive? Will David do anything then? I I, got to make this decision. I mean, will will David just spare his son life? We're going to spend another 40 years with this conspiracy? Or I take him out right now and disobey the king's orders. I work for a paramilitary outfit. You're told, follow orders. Protest later. That's not what he did. Did he do the right thing, even if it, it was against orders? You could argue about that in community group. Was it right? Was it wrong? Remember the movie, A Few Good Men? Lieutenant Coffey and Colonel Jessup. I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. We live in a world that has walls, and these walls are guarded by men with guns. I have greater responsibility than you could possibly fathom. We use words like honor and code and loyalty. I have neither the time nor the inclination to explain myself to you. Somebody who rides and sleeps under the very blanket of the freedom which I provide. Had to do what I had to do. Joab's going, I got to do what I got to do. I'm taking him. I don't care what the king says. I decide I make decisions, I'm, I'm killing him. I'm not bringing him back to Jerusalem. I'm not bringing him back to David. Sometimes you got to make split decisions, right? Sometimes, I don't know if you ever live in that kind of world. I know I did. You got to make a split decision. And people are, are going to be very much affected by what decisions you make. Joab's like, I'm going to make this decision. It wasn't easy, I'm sure. David, though, was more concerned about his son. Joab was more concerned about the kingdom. That I think we can know. Uh, Joab was more concerned about the kingdom, and David was more concerned about his son. And he defied the orders. Verse 18. Absalom in his lifetime had taken up, set up a pillar for himself. Figures, he's full of himself. I have no son, verse 18, to keep my name. Now, what's interesting is he had three sons, it tells us earlier. They might have all died. We don't really know. But here's Absalom before his death. The, uh, the author, the, the writer is telling us he set up this monument to himself. He's full of himself. But he's dead. David's grief, verse 19. Then Ahimeaz, the son of Zodak, said, Let me run and carry the news to the king. That the Lord has delivered him from the hand of his enemies. Joab says in verse 20, You're not to carry the news. You're not going, Ahimeaz. You're not going. He's the the priest's son. You're not going. You're going to carry news some other day, but it ain't going to be today because the son of the king is dead. Verse 21. Then Joab said to the Cushite, Turns to Cushite and says, you go and tell the king what you've seen. The Cushite bows before the, uh, Joab and takes off. He's going, he's going back to where David is in Mahanim, in the, in the city, to tell him what's going on. And what's so interesting is, why did not Joab let the Hebrew, the son of the priest, go and tell him? Maybe, maybe he's like, you know what? Two other times, messengers ran to David. Remember this? It's Pesheth and, and Saul. And two messengers came and said, hey, we defeated the guy that's trying to kill you. And what did David do? He killed them both. Maybe he's thinking, you know what? I'm not going to send this Hebrew with bad news. His son is dead because David's going to kill him. So we'll send the foreigner. <laughs> Who cares? Cushite, you go. I, I don't know. Verse 22, the Hemahaz, the son of Zodak, he's not going to lay down on this, said to Joab, listen, 
Come what may, let me also run. The Cushite is gone. Let me run also. And Joab said, why will you run, my son? My son, see that? Seeing they have no reward for the news. You're not going to get anything for this. Come what may, he said, I will run. So Joab says to Emahaz, run. Emahaz runs on the plain, verse 23, and he outruns Cushite. So he's a faster dude. He's probably younger. David was sitting behind the gate, verse 24. And the watchmen go up on the roof, and he's looking out over the plain. And he says, I see a man running, verse 24. The watchman tells the king, I see a man running. The king says, is he alone? There's news in his mouth. And he drew nearer and newer. Verse 26, the watchman saw another man running. And the watchman called to the gate and said, I see another man running. King says, he, he brings news too. Verse 27, the watchman said, I think the one running, the first one is Ahimaaz, the son of Zodak. And the king said, he's a good man. And he comes with good news. So you got these two men running. One's going faster than the other. But then verse 28. The Hemahaz cried out to the king. He gets to the king and he says, All is well, king. Ahimaaz, the Jew, the, the, one that would, you know, the one that he convinced Joab to go. He gets there first. And he says, All is well, shalom. He bows to the king, puts his face to the earth, and he says to the king, Blessed be the Lord your God, who has delivered us, delivered up the men who raised their hand against my lord the king. That's the news. And the king doesn't say, That's awesome. The king says, is it well with my son? Imahaz answers, verse 29. When Joab sent the king's servant, your servant, he let, me, he let me run here. I saw a great commotion, but I do not know what was going on. Some commentators say he must not have known. I'm like, no, he folded like a cheap chair. <laughs> he knew what was going on. I'll go tell him. He gets to the king. I, I, I don't know. That's exactly what happened. Verse 30, and the king said, turn aside, here comes somebody else. Verse 31, behold, the Cushite came. Good news for my Lord. What's the good news? For the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. The king said to Cushite, it is well with my son. Same question. The Cushite says, may the enemies of my Lord, the king, and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. Not good. Marathon, the Jew cave, the foreigner tells them, I have good news. Now, family, I'm going to tell you something. In antiquity, this is what good news is. This is what good news meant in the Bible. Good news, what good news means in the Bible is that there is something that's being told that has happened. It's not advice. We saw that last week. Ahithophel and Hushai gave advice. Absalom, you want to kill your father? This is what you ought to do. It hasn't happened yet, but I'm going to tell you what you should do in the future so that you can kill your father. That's advice. This is gospel. This is good news. Throughout antiquity, this is what people did when they went back to a city to give the king or the leaders good news of victory, good news of triumph. Not counsel about circumstances, but good news. And what's the good news? Look what the Cushite said. The Lord has delivered you. It's already done. The battle is over. He delivered you from the hand of your enemy. The word delivered is the word judged or to put things right. May the enemies of my Lord the King rise up against you. Be like that man. The Lord has done it. Good news. Good news for those who win. 
Bad news for those who are defeated, right? Absalom's defeat and death was justice for King David. The rebel had had been justly overthrown, and the one who fought against the king is dead, and now the rightful king has taken his place as king. But not according to David. Look at verse 33. Oh, the king was deeply moved and went up to his chambers, running and crying and running away. And he wept. He said, oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Do you feel the pain? His, his, his life was just caving in around him. Absalom's life was such a tumultuous life, out of control, all kinds of evil, and now he's dead. Would I have died instead of you? What if? What if I could have went, right? We've got all kinds of what ifs in our life, right? We've all, we've all had that. No parent wants to be a survivor of their children. He's crying out. But do you see more what's going on here? This is the fulfillment of God's prophecy. By the mouth of Nathan, the sword will not depart from your house. David's weeping. He's shedding tears. He's broken. But his wisdom is problematic. Absalom was a rebel. And justice demanded one thing. But David's love for Absalom longed. David's love for Absalom longed for something else. And torn by that love that welled up within him, the thought of his son's death was overwhelming. He was unconsolable. And 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 uh, some commentators, and I, I happen to agree with this. Many people say that what was happening as well with David, why he was so crushed, was David understood his guilt in all this. That, that somehow David was, was grieving and his grieving intensified by a recognition of his own sin. He was not without guilt himself. He was not without regret himself. And that probably added to the pain he was feeling. I think, I think we have to be careful. I think, family, listen, I think we have to be careful than just applying these verses to ourselves very broadly. You're not the king of Israel, neither am I. Right? There are times that we make bad decisions that implicate the ones we love and we feel the pain when things happen to them and we're, we're part of it. I get that. But ultimately, grown men and women make choices that they're responsible for. Right? Their own decisions. And also, I think we have to be careful that a lot of difficulties and trials and hardship come into our lives because of our own stupidity. Or I should say my own stupidity. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll take the one for this. But sometimes it's just a fallen world. So we can't just go, I'm going through this because of this. We have to be very, very careful. We have to use wisdom. We've got to be in community. We've got to be in the word. Uh, and remember this, no matter what you've done, it's under the blood. You're forgiven. So we have to be, we have to be very, very careful. So the army's defeated. Absalom is dead. David is grieving. And we'll look at finally displeasure. Verse 1, chapter 19. It was told Joab, behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard that day the king is grieving for his son. I mean, think about you being the army, right? Verse 3, and the people stole, and the people stole into the city that day as people steal, and who are ashamed when they flee in a battle. It's like they stole something, like something wasn't right. The king covered his face, and the king cried out aloud, Oh, my son, now he does it again, my son, my son, Absalom, my son. Verse 5, then Joab came into the house and said to the king, 
You have today covered with shame the faces of your servants who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons, your daughters, wives, and concubines because you, David, love those who hate you and hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. There's a bold statement, all right? The victory, this, this, this salvation, that's what the word victory, salvation, became a day of sadness, not just for the king, but for all the people. They made the armies feel ashamed. They risked their lives. And now they feel like they've acted against him. These are the same people that went with David out of Jerusalem a couple of chapters, weeping with him. As he left Jerusalem, fleeing his life from his son, they're crying with him, they're weeping with him, they're going with him. And now, this is what he does. I mean, they humiliated. Their victory was the cause of the grief of their king. Talk about a mixed message. A day of victory turned into mourning. And he covers his face again in verse 4. He's unconsolable. And Joab can't take it anymore. He's had enough. He confronts the king and he tells the king, you're all twisted, dude. You're seeing this completely wrong. Number one, the people saved your life and you reward them with dishonor. Number two, the command says love your neighbor. You're making it out to hate your neighbor. Number three, his actions are saying we mean nothing to you. And finally, taking David's rationale, his his attitude and action to a conclusion, he would rather the entire army be dead as long as my my son Absalom is alive. Verse 7. Now, king, get up. Go out and speak to your servants. Stop. Blow your nose. Wipe your eyes. Let's go. I swear by the Lord, he says, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night. And this will be worse for you than all the evil has come upon you from your youth until now. Then the king arose, took his seat in the gate, and the people were all told, behold, the king is sitting at the gate, and all the people came before the king. Eight times, eight times in chapter 19, verses 1 through 8, the word today, this day, today, this day, today, and Joab jumps on that and says, you've done this today, by nighttime, you'll have no one left. David goes, notice David doesn't say anything to the people. He goes to the gate, nothing said, and the army comes before the people. Meanwhile, they all flee to their homes. David is there. The kingdom has been restored. The civil war is over. And now David is king of Israel, but he's grieving over the loss of his son. And what's what's and I mentioned this a minute ago, but let me just point out one last time as we, we wrap up. David knew why Absalom had to die. God told him multiple times, even in our chapter. The good news, you've been delivered from your enemies. The good news, the Lord God has delivered you. Good news, verse 31, delivered you, uh, those who rose against you. David, the civil war was about your enemies going against you. The Lord had stepped in and the Lord delivered you. Stop your crying. God's will is bring Absalom to justice. You know, it's okay to mourn, but in David's case, enough is enough. God's plans and purposes were done. David should have known better. Now listen, Absalom is the Antichrist. 
Absalom is the anti-God. He, he opposes the king of kings, the Lord himself. He opposed King David. He opposed the actual king of all creation. If he had found David before David's men found Absalom, Absalom would have killed his father. But now the kingdom is restored. And what you see in Absalom's death is, is something that's really amazing. What you see in this Antichrist is the actual Christ. He's the, anti- he's the, he's the contrast to the gospel. Here is Absalom hanging on a tree between heaven and earth under the curse of God for his sin. Here is Absalom hanging on a tree Pierced as he hangs on the tree, a spear shoved into his body, a cursed burial under a pile of stones, divine judgment. And David says, oh, if I could have just died for him. The problem is, David's a sinner too. All have sinned and fall short of the God's glory. If David would have died instead of Absalom, he would have died for his own sin, not the sin of Absalom. Not the sin of Absalom. He is unable to take the judgment of God himself because he would have died for his own judgment. There must be a a substitute, a perfect substitute that can die for others. And the opposite of Absalom is Christ himself, who hung on a tree between heaven and earth under a curse, was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, Galatians tells us, by becoming a curse for us, for it is written... Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, Deuteronomy, so that in Christ Jesus, his judgment, his death, the curse he died, because in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, the promise, can come to the Gentiles. Listen, the curse he is under is not for his own sin, but for our sin. Jesus was put in a tomb, a large stone rolled in front, blocking the entrance, and three days later he rises from the grave, conquering the grave, atoning for sin. Judgment. Listen, in both instances, a curse in both instances, hanging on a tree between heaven and earth in both instances, pierced in both instances, buried under a stone in both instances, Absalom dying for his own rebellion, the Christ dying as our substitute, our savior, our sin bearer. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a savior. Now that's not advice. That's good news. The gospel is good news, a declaration of the truth of what Christ has already done, what God has already done. Listen, I'm not giving you advice for the future. I'm not concerned about what's happening in front of you at the moment. What I'm concerned about is that you respond to the good news. It's been declared. It's been done. It's, it's time to believe and rejoice in it. You can accept the good news and rejoice in it, or you can mourn for your sin and walk away. The choice is yours. God has not given you advice. He's given you good news that you must respond to. Love may have motivated David to mourn for his son, and justice may have motivated Joab to deliver him and kill him. But at the cross, love and justice meet. Christ dies for our sins, takes his judgment that we deserve upon himself, becomes that curse that all of us deserve, takes on himself our sin, gets buried, stone rolled, rises from the dead, and now our response is to say, yes, Jesus. Yes. You you can't try to be a Christian. 
It's a response to good news. Will you respond to the good news? Christ has come, lived a perfect life, died an atoning death, went into the grave, rose from the dead, respond to him and say, yes, Jesus is Lord. He's Savior. He's King. He's Lord. He's my God and Savior. Will you respond to him this morning? Let's pray. Father, this good news is, is something we could never, ever, ever accomplish on our own. We could, we could never, ever deserve. We can never, ever do for ourselves. But we recognize that you have done this for us. By sending a substitute, the perfect spotless Lamb of God, the one who lived without sin, identified with our humanity yet without sin, and dies the death of a cursed man in our place for our sins, takes on our judgment, is buried and rises from the dead. Father, please open our hearts and minds to see the reality of the gospel, the good news that we may rejoice in it this morning together and worship you as our Savior. Help us, Lord, to see that and respond in faith this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.